What I have for you this morning is not really a sermon, it's more like a story, and I hope it challenges you, I hope it encourages you and grows your faith. So I want to tell you about this couple. Richard was born in 1909 in Romania, he's the youngest of four Jewish sons, grew up to be a stockbroker, and he was a leftist political agitator uh, in his day in Romania before World War II. His, this is his wedding picture with his wife, Sabina, and she's also Jewish. They got married in 19, let me look up the date, get this right, 1936. They were married, and two years later, there's a carpenter working on their house who is a Christian, and they are impacted by his faith in Jesus Christ, and they found their Jewish Messiah and got born again two years after they were married um, at age 27. They were both saved. Richard said that in the days after he met Jesus, he did not know how he was going to get to live the rest of his life because he said he was just overcome with emotion on the street and living life with every single person he met had to know about Jesus. And I had to know, is this person eternally saved or are they eternally damned? And he said, I didn't know how I was going to be able to think or feel anything else, how I was going to accomplish any work in life because he was so overwhelmed with the love of God and concern for the people around him. He eventually became an Anglican minister and then a Lutheran minister. And then months after that, the Nazis invaded Romania, and this is the World War II. Their church had to go underground, meaning not literally underground, but just secret because the Nazis didn't allow any Christian services that weren't registered with the government. And to register with the government, you had to swear allegiance to Adolf Hitler. And the Wurmbrands were not willing to do that, and they're Jewish, and they're Christian. And so they and their congregation went off the radar underground, but their ministry was still very public. They preached in bomb shelters. They rescued Jewish children from the ghettos. They'd heard rumors about the trains and the camps and the gas chambers and the ovens. Uh, Sabina's family was arrested. Eventually they found out all of her immediate family was gassed, died in the Holocaust. I don't know what happened to Richard's family, but Sabina lost her entire immediate family. They continued to minister publicly through the Nazi occupation, they were arrested multiple times, they beaten multiple times. There was an attempt at executing them um, because of their Christian work. If you want to know more about that part of the story, there's a movie out just last month um, called Sabina, and it's her story of what happened to her during the Nazi occupation of Romania in World War II. You can find that online and, and watch that. But toward the end of World War II, the Soviet army, Joseph Stalin and the Soviet Union, send their army across from the east while we, meaning we the Allies, United States, England, France, are coming and squashing the Nazis from the west, took over the territory, liberated the territory that they had occupied, and our World War II came to an end. But Joseph Stalin and the communists of Russia would not give up their territory that they had taken and the people in Eastern Europe originally were excited for the Soviets to come and liberate them from the Nazis, but then they found out they'd really just gone from the frying pan into the fire, that living under the communists was no better than living under the Nazis. And, and the Iron Curtain went up and the Soviet bloc nations and the Cold War began and, and the Wurmbrands and the Christians in Romania had to stay underground, worshiping in secret. 
The churches that didn't go underground, there was plenty of public churches. There was Greek Orthodox and Russian Orthodox and Lutheran and Catholic and Anglican and Methodist and Pentecostal, and they met publicly in public church buildings and cathedrals all over, but the priests and ministers that led those churches had to, had to swear allegiance to the Communist Party, and many thousands of them did. But the communists that led Romania, they, they knew that there were other churches, lots of different religious groups, and it was okay if you were religious as long as your first allegiance was them and that Jesus or Christianity or whatever was, was second. So in 1945, after the Soviet Union and the communists take control of Romania, there was a meeting that the communists called the Congress of the Cults or the Convention of the Cults, and it was in the Romanian Communist Parliament. This is that room. This is not that meeting, but this is the room that it was in, the Communist Parliament. I just need you to get a, a vision of the scope for what the, happens in this story I'm about to tell you. All, they invited all the major public religious leaders of all the denominations in Romania. And one by one, the, the Orthodox priests and the Catholic priests and the Lutheran ministers and the Methodist ministers, they get up and they give a speech on live television in front of 4,000 Communist Party government officials and they swear allegiance to communism. And praise how great it is. And the Verbrand said that as this happened one after another after another, they began to get nauseous. And this is a direct quote. Sabina leaned over to Richard and she said, Richard, stand up and wash this shame from the face of Christ. They are spitting in his face. And he leaned over and whispered and said, if I do that, you have no husband. And she whispered back, I do not wish to have a coward for a husband. So 37-year-old Richard Vermbrand went to the pulpit when it was his turn to swear allegiance to the Communist Party, and he faced 4,000 people in the entire nation on live television, and he said, shame on you all. How dare you swear allegiance to a government you know is satanic just to save your own skin. And the police came out of nowhere and whisked him off from the podium and ushered him out of the room. And he was not immediately arrested, but he knew he was a marked man because he had done what he did on live television in front of every communist official in the entire nation and in front of the entire Soviet Union. And two and a half years later, on a Sunday morning on his way to church in 1948, a van pulled up beside the sidewalk and men jumped out and grabbed him and shoved him in and he disappeared from the face of the earth. His name was erased from all government records. No one knew whether he was alive or dead. What they did take him to was this prison. That is the actual hallway of the prison where he was held in solitary confinement for the next three years. They changed his name in the records so that when his wife or anybody else came to find him, there was no Richard Vermbrand. It, well, sorry, we don't have that man. He's not here. He was put in solitary confinement in a soundproof cell. The guards even wore felt on their shoes so that there was no sound and every, every one of these religious and political prisoners was completely alone. Uh, it was meant to drive them insane. They were fed one piece of bread a week. A piece of bread would fall through a slot in the door and that was his only contact with the outside world. There was no light. It's 12, literally 12 foot underground. Uh, there was no light in the cell, no schedule. Most of the time he would be left alone. But he said, sometimes I'd be taken out for a beating. The first one he got was they hung him upside down by his feet and they 
put a steel in the fire and got it red hot and poked him around his body in various places. I'll show you pictures of his scars later. I don't know if he was personally, but I know the communists were fond of electrocuting people, hooking diodes up to their body parts and shocking them. And they, he was subjected to heavy labor sometimes, um, numerous beatings. He said one, sometimes at 5 a.m. they would come and get him and he'd have to sit stock still in an upright chair while uh, one of the communist guards just shouted in his face, there is no God, Jesus is a lie, Christianity is stupid, communism is good. And he said from 5 a.m. to 10 p.m. they would just shout in his face and beat him and tell him that God was a lie and he was stupid and this is what his faith had gotten him and that the communists were good. And he said, I wasn't allowed to close my eyes, I wasn't allowed to rest my head, I had to just sit there or I'd get whacked in the head with a stick. For three years, he was in solitary confinement in a 12-foot cell with no lights, no sound, except for the occasional beating and interrogation. What the communists wanted was names. Who else meets in your church? Where do you meet? Who else is a Christian? And he, he would not give them names, so his beatings were particularly bad. When he was left alone in his cell, he said the only way he could keep sanity was remembering Scripture. He had no Bible. He had to do it by memory. He had an exceptional memory. He knew nine languages. And again, he's 37 when this starts. The first incarceration was eight and a half years. So he's in his early 40s. He said, I would sleep during the day as much as possible as I could figure out when the day was. When the guards were more active, he said, when at night, the guards were less active, and they said, and then I would be awake, and I would walk back and forth in my cell, and I would remember as much scripture as possible, and I would write sermons. He said, I wrote a sermon every night, and I would tap it in Morse code to the man in the cell next to me. Didn't know who he was, never seen him, never met him, but he'd preach the gospel to the man next to him. Twenty years later, after he's free, he wrote a book that contained 350 of those sermons that he had written by remembering scripture, and then he remembered 350 different distinct sermons and wrote them down in the 60s, 20 years after he was in his cell for three years. After three years in solitary confinement, he was brought out into a group cell. He said one of them had 200 men in it. Once he got into the group cell, first thing he does is start to preach Jesus. Said a lot of them in there were already Christians, that's why they were there, but a lot of them weren't. They were political prisoners, they were criminals, they were just there. He said at one, one point there was a cell with 200 men in it, but preaching was expressly prohibited. So here's this quote, it was strictly forbidden to preach to other prisoners. It was understood that whoever was caught doing this received a severe beating. A number of us decided to pay the price for the privilege of preaching. So we accepted the communist terms, it was a deal. We preached and they beat us. We were happy preaching, they were happy beating us. Everyone was happy. He said, the cruelty of atheism is hard to believe when a man has no faith in the reward of good or the punishment of evil. There is no reason to be human. There is no restraint from the depths of evil which is in man. The communist torturers often said, there is no God, no hereafter, no punishment for evil. We can do what we wish. We have heard one torturer even say, I thank God in whom I don't believe that I have lived to this hour when I can express all the evil in my heart. And he expressed it unbelievably, in unbelievable brutality and torture inflicted on prisoners. That particular man was the worst of the torturers in the prison. At one point, he chained Richard up upside down and then chained his arms, his wrists to his feet, and he beat his feet so bad that his 
flesh split on the bottom of his feet and then he brought him back the next day and beat him until he could see his bones and then he made him walk up and down the hall on it. He said there was no words for, to describe that pain. That same guard later came in his cell once while he was praying and the guard was furious and he said, what do you have to pray for? Look what your prayers have gotten you. You have absolutely nothing left. What are you praying for? And he says, I'm praying for you. It was one of the only times the guard left him alone. He was so shocked, he just turned around and walked out. Wurmbrand said, communism is the religion of hell. Any Christianity that does not denounce it is not Christianity. But he did say that the Romanian government gave every Christian prisoner a musical instrument so that they could worship God. And he meant their handcuffs. He said we would circle up in the cell when we were together and we would bang our handcuffs together and we would sing, this is the day... This is the day that the Lord has made, that the Lord has made. I will rejoice, I will rejoice and be glad in it. And he said, this is the day the Lord has made. It was a day of beating, a day of torture, a day of hunger, a day of deprivation of every kind. Not knowing if I had a wife, not knowing if I had a mother, not knowing if my children were alive, I knew nothing. But I had a duty to bring a song into this sad world. They decided that when they were together out of solitary, they still didn't get fed much, but it was more than just a piece of bread a week, um, some sort of barley gruel or oatmeal or something and, and bread, and, and I don't know how often they were fed, but they decided that even though they were in prison, they were not exempt from the laws of God, and they, they wanted to know how they could tithe. Even though they had absolutely nothing, they decided that they had food and that they needed to tithe off of anything they had. They were not excused from that. And so they decided that each man would tithe 10% of his bread or his gruel and it would all go to the sickest man in the cell. And at this meal, that man would eat like a king. All of the other Christian prisoners would give up just a few times a week. They would give up their food because I'm not exempt from tithing. One of the guards one time, I was harassing him, telling him how stupid he was and Look what this got you. Your God's completely forgotten you. You smell like a pig. You haven't showered in 11 years. Verbrand smiled and laughed. And he said, and my God took away my desire for a shower. <laughs> he said he completely forgot, literally, truly forgot that mountains and trees and rivers existed. He said, I forgot every color except gray. I did not remember that there was green and violet and red. Everything was gray. Our uniforms, the prison, the guards' uniforms, everything, everything was completely colorless. And I just forgot it all. But he said one time, when ex in extraordinary circumstances, extraordinary events happened, he said there was a group of us sitting in a circle, clanking together our shackles while we sang in complete darkness. And then a light came into the room and all of us saw it. It was real. It wasn't, it wasn't just a vision and then the walls of the prison cell, he said, began to sparkle like diamonds. And then Jesus walked out of that wall and into the cell. And he said that we would have expected him to be comforting and pat us on the head and tell us we're doing great. And if we're just faithful and overcome, we'll see eternal life. No, he just stood there and we fell on our face and worshiped him. And he said, all, all of the world that I've traveled and seen since I've been free 
because I've never seen anything as beautiful as those prison walls while I'm on my face worshiping my king. He was in prison eight and a half years, and he was released and strictly told, you do not preach Jesus. He immediately went to church and preached. He immediately went out on the street and shared the gospel, knowing what it's going to cost him, knowing he's being watched. He did it again. He didn't pause. He didn't stop. He wasn't even out, I, I don't even think, a full two years, and, and he was arrested again, and again, tortured and beaten and solitary and deprived, and while he was in prison the second time, Sabina, his wife, was arrested and sent off to a concentration camp for three years, working heavy labor with other women on a canal system that was being built. And, and her story is written in her own book called The Pastor's Wife. Sarah would say is one of the top books she's, she's read. Um, their son, well, when she was arrested, she wasn't with their son, who was now a young teenager, 12, 13-ish that neither one of them had any idea who was alive and who wasn't. Where's their son? A woman in their church took their son in. The secret police gave her a visit and knocked out all her teeth because she was taking care of a son of political prisoners. Twice, Sabina was visited at home by the secret police who told her that Richard had died in prison. The first time they came, they lied. They disguised themselves as released prisoners. And they said, we're, we're just released prisoners from the prison. We're just here to tell you your son died. We were at his, or your, your husband died. We were at his funeral in the prison. And she knew, she saw right through it. She knew it was the secret police. She knew he, was, he must be alive if they're telling me he's dead. Um, the second time, she got official death certificate from the government. She knew it wasn't right. But in prison, they told him that they had told her that he was dead and that she believed it and married another man. But he also saw through that. He knew that wasn't true, that she would not believe that he was dead. Uh, just constant torment and trouble. In 1965, after 14 years of total prison time, Christians in Norway and Denmark and England pooled money together and ransomed him for $10,000. They got the government to release him. The going rate for a political prisoner at that time was about $2,000. You could pay the remaining government. They were so poor that they would take money. Yes, you can have our prisoner and, and let them leave the country. Romanians knew they could get a lot more money for him, so they held out for $10,000 and he was ransomed. When he got out, his fellow Christians said, you've been ransomed and you're not going to serve the rest of your term, and you're going to Norway. And he said, no, I'm not leaving Romania. This is my homeland, it's my nation, it's my people, and I'm bringing Jesus to this, this country. Eventually, they begged him and pushed him and insisted that he and Sabina leave the country. So they left with their son, and, um, who was an adult by that time, but he left also. They went to Norway, and then eventually England, and then eventually the United States, where they lived here in the United States for the rest of their, their days. He was called to testify before the U.S. Congress, and he's telling of his tortures in the communists, behind the Iron Curtain in the communist bloc countries, and some Democrat congressmen who were sympathetic to the communists accused him of lying. So in a congressional hearing, he strips off his suit coat and shirt to show him his scars, caused quite a stir, made national news. There's the, one of the scars in his back from the hot steel and one in his shoulder that he showed to Congress when, they, when some accused him of lying, of making it up. Luke 14, says, In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. When Richard and Sabina got to the U.S., 
they formed a group that is now called Voice of the Martyrs. Many of you I know have already heard of that ministry. They work with people, Christians, in areas of the world where they're persecuted for their faith. Uh, China, North Korea, Southeast Asia, the Middle East, Africa, Mexico, Cuba, soon to be America and Canada. Uh, Voice of the Martyrs is is very famous ministry. Richard wrote a book called Tortured for Christ, which is the second most translated book of the 20th century, translated into more languages in the world than anything else. Um, he was asked, your book is the most translated book of the 20th century. He said, no, one of Agatha Christie's novels surpassed me. His book, Tortured for Christ, has been read by hundreds of millions of people. If you have not read it, I highly recommend it. You'll get the details of this story. Sabina's book is called The Pastor's Wife. Highly recommend it. She died in 99 or 2000. He died in 2001. When he came to the United States, his thought, his goal, was that he would stir up the American church and the American government to help the persecuted church where Christianity is illegal. And they got here, and he was absolutely shocked at what he found in America. He said, when we were prisoners, we begged God to send the American army. Like, why are the Americans letting this happen? Why do they not invade? They're the Christian nation. They're supposed to be rescuing us. Sabina writes about that in her book. The Romanian church was, and the church in all the communist countries, was just shocked that America didn't help. So, but when we got to America, we found out why. Because most American Christians didn't care. And they weren't praying for us. And they weren't thinking about us. They weren't even sharing the gospel. He said, we got to America in the 60s and, and every Christian I knew in, in the nations that persecuted Christianity, we burned for the souls of the people around us. We wept bitter tears for the salvation of the men who beat us. And I got to America and no one's sharing the gospel when it doesn't cost you anything. Nobody cared. Nobody was praying for us. So they spent the rest of their days, 40 years, 35 years, traveling America and the free world, trying to make the church and the government do something about China, North Korea, Sudan, Vietnam and Cuba, Nigeria. But he, he gave this statement that is the whole point of everything I've told you so far this morning is leading up to this quote. He said, a man who visits a barber to be shaved or who orders a suit from a tailor is not a disciple but a customer. And so one who comes to the Savior only to be saved is the Savior's customer, not his disciple. A disciple is one who says to Christ, how I long to do work like yours, to go from place to place taking away fear and bringing instead joy, truth, comfort, and life eternal. We're not Jesus' customers, folks. But I just ask you to think, what do you mostly pray about? Do you mostly ask Jesus for stuff? Jesus, I need this, and I need this, I need you to fix this, I need you to take care of that. You just, it, that's not wrong to pray, but if that's all, then you're just Jesus' customer. 
A disciple prays, Lord, what can I do for you today? Where do you want me to go? What money do you want me to give away? What gifts do you want me to give away? What time do you want me to give away? My time is not mine. My, my money is not mine. My body is not mine. My children is not mine. It's all yours, Jesus. That's a disciple. And yes, you can ask Jesus to take care of things and fix things and give you things that you need. And it's, it's not wrong. He's just saying that if that's all you pray about, if that's all you follow Jesus for is what he can do for you, even spiritually, you're just his customer. So I respectfully ask you this morning that if you just want to be Jesus' customer, please find a different church. Because I want a church of disciples. I want a church of people who are, as we sang last week, lay down lovers. As we sang this week, you can have all this world, just give me Jesus. Because Vermbrand, to the very end, at 92 years old, 90, yeah, he insisted, I am not an extraordinary Christian. I'm the normal. He said, this is what Jesus promised from the very beginning, that we would have to deny ourselves and take up our cross, that we had to love him more than our parents and children, and that we'd be willing to give them up for him. He said in prison he watched a man being beat and beat and beat and beat and he would not give up names. He wouldn't, he wouldn't deny Christ and he wouldn't betray the church and so they brought in his 14-year-old son and they beat his 14-year-old son in front of him and after about three strokes he said, okay, fine, I'll tell, I'll talk, I'll say whatever you want me to say and his 14-year-old son looks at him and says, dad, do not betray Jesus, let them kill me. And he watched them beat his 14-year-old son's skull in. Jesus. He said that man was never the same. This is an extraordinary 14-year-old who knew that his dad could not betray Jesus and retain his soul. We're not Jesus' customers, folks. We're his disciples. And I'm preaching to myself more than anyone else in this room. That I, over time, I just pick up all these things that I want and I want to do and I think about and, and I, and pretty soon I, I'm not carrying the cross anymore because I picked up a bunch of other stuff and I had to make room for that. We, we, we got to be his disciples. Your time and attention and motives and priorities, they can't be our own. They've got to be his. I, I almost just can't even go to Walmart anymore and because I'm so overwhelmed with the need that I see in front of me. You can see it on their faces. You can see it in their hair. You can see it in their clothing. You can see it in their bodies are broken and their families are broken and their minds are broken and they're as lost as lost. And it's hundreds of people at a time and I get overwhelmed and I can't walk through Walmart without praying in tongues because I'm just so overwhelmed with the need of the people in our own valley. And we live in Mayberry, USA. Compared to downtown Portland, uh, these people are lost. They are broken. They are without hope and they are without truth. And they're so stupid they don't know their right hand from their left. God have mercy. We've got to get out of our own lives, folks. Richard insisted, I am not extraordinary. I am normal. It's the, wet, the church in the free world that is not normal. Because we're not living what Jesus promised from the beginning. This is what we signed up for when we got baptized, folks.
My life is not my own. You literally enacted your own death and burial. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Amen. Let's pray. Let's repent. Lord, we repent of trying to be your customers instead of your disciples. Well, we understand that you have everything we need and you are everything we need and we come to you with every need and that you're not upset by that. But Lord, we repent of that being the only thing that we pray about and the only way we interact with you is, is what we need and what you can do for us. Lord, we repent of all that and we lay down our, our motivations and our priorities and our time and our money and our kids and our parents and our jobs and our material possessions, Lord. It's all, we lay it all down. It's not ours, it's yours. We would say again afresh, we're here to be your disciples. We're here to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow you. And right now, there's no threat of arrest and beatings in America for being a Christian. But Lord, whatever cost you would have us pay in hate or rejection or ostracism or or inconvenience or our time or our money and whatever it is, Lord. We lay it all down and we say you're worth the cost. You can have all this world. Give us Jesus. Give us Jesus. You're the only one we want. There is nothing else. There is no other person, no other thing, no other goal but to know you and love you, to fall on our face and give you all the glory and every crown. We bless your holy name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Amen.